WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to NYC Now. I'm Janae Pierre for WNYC. If you were planning on swimming at Coney Island Beach, there's some bad news. The city issued a beach advisory Wednesday because of, quote, inadequate water quality. Officials say the water is contaminated with sewage or storm runoff. Just think fecal bacteria. New York's combined sewer system often becomes overwhelmed after heavy rains, and untreated sewage flows into the city's waterways, sometimes days after a storm. Swimming in this kind of water can cause illnesses. It's especially risky for children, pregnant women, and the chronically ill. Earlier this month, a judge paused New York's cannabis rollout. But now, a handful of licensed dispensaries may be allowed to open. WNYC's Caroline Lewis has more. Judge Kevin Bryant issued a preliminary injunction last week blocking any new dispensaries from opening and any new licenses from being issued. But he offered existing license holders a glimmer of hope. He said if they already received state approval for their dispensary locations, they could open. And he asked the state to make up a list of those who qualified. That list has been submitted, and it has just 30 businesses on it, leaving more than 400 current license holders in limbo. Some have poured months of work and thousands of dollars into opening dispensaries. Those left off the list will be able to submit individual pleas to the court to become exempt from the injunction. Stick around. There's more after the break. Music helps us celebrate, contemplate, cope, and connect. And we've got the stories to prove it. Join me, Terrence McKnight, for the new season of The Open Ears Project, a podcast in which people tell us about the piece of classical music that has meant the most to them. That music might even wind up being meaningful for you. The Open Ears Project. Listen now wherever you get podcasts. Next year, New York will likely become the first American city to charge drivers a fee just to enter its downtown streets. The MTA will run the city program, but it's still figuring out how much to charge vehicles that enter Manhattan below 60th Street. But New York isn't the first city in the world to implement a congestion pricing scheme. WNYC's Stephen Nesson looks into a few international examples. On a typical summer afternoon in Soho, there's a bumper-to-bumper -bumper crawl to the Holland Tunnel. No one likes sitting in traffic, but it appears the best way to reduce traffic, congestion pricing, isn't popular either. I think it's enough with the money that the city got from tunnels and bridges. 
It's ridiculous. That's driver Cecilia Solis from Bayside, Queens. She's a tour guide and often drives around the city for work. I'm not the only person who is in, against this, this new law. She's not. Tom Glatt from Hoboken, who's breathing in exhaust fumes from the comfort of his Mercedes convertible, agrees. It's absolutely insane. I don't know who would agree to that. That was the feeling in Stockholm, Sweden, too, before that city implemented congestion pricing in 2006. It was really, really a very, very heated issue. And Swedes are not famous for, you know, uh, going out on the streets and holding banners and (laughs) kicking up lots of dust. That's Jonas Eliasson, who helped launch the city's program. He says, at first, two-thirds of Stockholm residents were against the charges. So the government made a deal. Try it for six months, then hold a referendum. Let the public vote on whether to keep congestion pricing. Not long after the program launched, traffic dropped by 20% downtown. No one really expected that the positive effects would be so, so, so big. It was literally speaking the difference between almost like gridlock on these uh, congested bridges towards seeing, you know, traffic moving all of the time. In the end, two thirds of the voters chose to keep congestion pricing. It remains in effect today with charges as much as $4.50 in the summer and a dollar less in the winter. That's not much compared to what the MTA has been discussing, with charges as high as $23, and less traffic might not be enough to persuade drivers to swallow that charge. But it might have to be that high. The state requires the MTA to bring in $1 billion a year through congestion pricing, and then all that money must go toward transit improvements. The city of London did it the other way around. When we introduced congestion charging in London, that was accompanied by a massive increase and improvement to the bus fleet. That's Alina Turk. She's head of strategy and planning for roads and freight at Transport for London, which has run the program since 2003. She says 90% of the trips into central London are now made by transit, foot, walking, or cycling. So the focus of how that space is used has shifted over time. And it's fair to say that without the charge, that wouldn't have been possible. But all those additions mean getting around the city by vehicle is still slow. People who are against congestion pricing use this to say London has been a failure. But Turk says while there are fewer vehicles in the congestion zone, the reason they're moving more slowly is because there's more room for other kinds of transportation. Back at the entrance to the Holland Tunnel, where traffic has barely budged, Tom Glatt in the convertible isn't convinced the Stockholm model would work here. No, because I think we still have a problem with uh, voting. I think most people are just uh, fed up with government generally, and it works to the favor of bad policy because people aren't animated enough even to change. But Cecilia Solis, the tour guide, says she'd prefer the Stockholm model hold a vote on congestion pricing six months after it launches. That's the difference, because if they ask you to vote, it's a different thing. Would that sway you at all if the money went to making the roads and the bike lanes better, as well as subways and buses? Of course, of course, it is. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. And there's real pressure on the MTA to get it right. If the transit agency succeeds, its congestion pricing program could be a model for reducing pollution and traffic not to mention funding mass transit in the U.S. and around the world. If it fails, it could be a setback for any other city thinking about launching congestion pricing. 
That's WNYC's Stephen Nesson. New York City is known for all of its noise. Fire engines speeding down the street, trains passing underground or over your head. And don't forget about those block parties that bump late into the night. But for a handful of New Yorkers, the noise isn't just part of city living. It's literally ear-shattering. Some live with a rare condition called hyperacusis, or acoustic trauma. Cleo Chang is a writer for Curbed. She reported on some New Yorkers living with acoustic trauma and says loud noises can become more than an inconvenience. Ordinary sounds can cause people discomfort, and in the most severe cases, it can be extremely painful. Some studies estimate that 1 in 50,000 people live with this condition, but people diagnosed who brave the five boroughs are few and far between. Those who do are taking major precautions, like Joyce Cohen on the Upper West Side. Chang describes Joyce's place. They have rugs all over their floor. They have, you know, towels in their bathroom. They have, like, cloth placemats all over their kitchen counters. And even in their fridge, right, they alternated their um, bottles from plastic to glass so that nothing would actually clink together and make a noise that I think, you know, you and I would hardly even think about. And when Joyce is out on the streets, she even wears earplugs under protective earmuffs to stave off the sound. And yet she won't leave New York City. Cheng says Joyce's explanation is simple. If you move away, you're just trading one noise for another. So, you know, in New York City, it's sirens and garbage trucks and stuff like that. But in suburbs, she says there's lawnmowers and leaf blowers, which I know anyone who's like heard a leaf blower knows how annoying it can be. That's not to say the sounds of city living aren't excruciating sometimes. But for Joyce, she'd rather take the occasional fire truck over a persistent woodpecker. Thanks for listening to NYC Now from WNYC. Catch us every weekday, three times a day. We'll be back tomorrow. 